Hello and welcome to the third pilot episode of the still as yet unnamed political podcast with myself, Mark Pack, and my sartorial superior, Stephen Toole. And uh, our regular listener will be overjoyed to know I am not in a suit and Stephen is not wearing anything that appears to be made of velvet this time. Yep, we're, uh, we're just keeping it real for the listeners this week. And we've also, as you will hopefully have heard, have acquired a theme tune. Well, I say tune, like a note, a theme note. This is a we're, we're, down. We're, we're trying to be proper professional yeah. here. This is austerity podcast here. <laughs> and of course, proper professional podcasts ask their audience what they would like us to talk about. Uh, which you did, Stephen, didn't you? I did. I went on the Twitter and on the Facebook and uh, said, uh, uh, despite popular request, we are doing another pilot episode of the podcast. I think we're just going to keep on calling them pilot podcasts. And um, I asked people, you know, are there any particular burning issues that you want uh, Mark and Stephen to uh, to discuss? Tell me, Mark, what did people tell me on my social feeds? Because you monitor them more closely than I do. <laughs> it's a sure sign that I spend too much time on social media that I know what people said to you better than you do. Uh, <laughs> Universal basic income was the one that really leapt out at me. You can tell I have a Lib Dem audience. Exactly, oh. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but one of the reasons it leapt out at me is I have changed my mind on this in uh, the minority unpopular direction from having been in favour of universal basic income when not very many people were to now being against one when rather more people are in favour of it. It's a true liberal yes. contrarian policy outlook. So shall I have a go at justifying myself? Uh, I think you're better, actually, yeah. after that uh, flip-flop. <laughs> so I think there are two broad sorts of arguments people have in favour of a, of a universal basic income. It's worth taking them, taking them separately. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the idea that it would be a much simpler, more straightforward way of doing things if you say everyone has a certain basic entitlement to an income uh, and everyone gets paid that and people who are well off end up paying more in tax, so they money comes back, but that across the board, much simpler system to have you know, a basic payment that goes to everyone. A bit like the argument in some ways for having a standard basic state pension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to think this was quite attractive until I actually sat on a Lib Dem policy working group that looked at this in some detail. Until you actually read about until it. Until I read about it, yes. <laughs> um, and the thing that struck me, and it sounds obvious now, so I apologise for my past dullness, is there's really a flaw and where the clue is in the name, a universal basic income, because that works if everyone is the same. And the moment you start factoring in health, Mm -hmm. disability, children, and also actually which part of the country you live in, Mm because housing costs vary hugely Mm -hmm. around the country, you end up either having a UBI that has to be remarkably generous to be able to cater for let's say a disabled parent with three children living in the southeast yeah. as well as you know families or single people elsewhere in the country so it either has to be remarkably generous or it has to have lots of exceptions to it where you have a universal basic income oh except that there's also something for children and there's something also for health and there's something and you end up really not that far away from what a well-run universal credit system yeah. would end up being as in a properly funded universal credit system and one that uh, you know, has has a whole load of other administrative reforms, but but you you very quickly lose the simplicity yeah. and the idea of saving money on administration, etc. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's an idea that does get support from um, across the spectrum. Mm. Mm. There are, uh, and that perhaps 
suggest that there is a, a flaw in it in the fact that it can attract both uh, left-leaning anarchists and uh, right-leaning uh, neoliberals who would uh, both say it's, it's the solution to all our ills. That does suggest that there's probably more thinking to be done uh, about it. Um, but of course, it, I mean, it makes sense from their point of view, as you've just uh, characterised, the, I suppose, the, the left-leaning argument, which is that this is a way in which you can provide decency. Uh, You're suggesting stability. people on the left might think everyone is the same, uniform and susceptible to a centralising, top-down <laughs> policy from Whitehall. It's just possible that it, might, It's curious. Uh, it is genuinely it's, it's curious. It's well-intentioned well oh, and well-meaning, and also, of course, yeah. has the liberal mm. add-on of trying to strip away unnecessary bureaucracy, strip away stigma from having to mm. apply for... Uh, different kinds mm. of means-tested benefits, etc. So you can see the left-leaning arguments, and mm. also, of course, there you can see the right-leaning arguments, which are strip away government, uh, unnecessary government, mm. uh, simplify these things. I and mean, it's it's sort of where universal credit uh, has its its uh, mm. origins as well. Of this idea, as long as you can just simplify everything and get government mm. out of as much mm. uh, as many corners of people's lives as possible, then you're going to make things uh, very straightforward. But of course, it butts into the uh, the problems you just talked about of different needs across different parts of the country. And I was brought home to me. I, I once, um, uh, I don't think I ever seriously advocated it, but I did once um, put it forward as an idea that the Lib Dems could consider if they were going to be a radical party. And uh, Tim Loynig, um, who at the time was at Centre Forum, now a uh, civil servant, um, slapped me down pretty quickly and said, well, OK. You, <laughs> you surprised me, yeah, Tim, yeah. would respond to a policy idea that <laughs> way. People who know Tim will not be surprised, will they? But um, he slapped me down pretty quickly, saying, well, OK, let's work this through. Um, you live in Oxford, which I did at the time, uh, and it's probably going to cost you £1,000 in rent a month for a fairly dismal bedsit somewhere. Um, then let's add on an extra 100 a week um, for food, and then an extra 100 a week for living expenses, etc." So you tell me where that £2,000 a month is going to come from. Uh, you try and work through any kind of policy paper that will show how that doesn't leave, lead to either swinging tax increases or to massive shortfall in what would be needed for people to, uh, to live uh, comfortably on. So it's, uh, in one sense it's a lovely idea, um, though I think there are challenges around selling it to the public on the idea of uh, people being yeah, paid I'm, for nothing. I'm, and I'm not sure... I mean, I... I I do to an extent agree with Tim's argument, but I think it's probably the weakest argument against a universal basic income in the sense that it is susceptible to the, actually, no, sometimes we need big, bold, controversial policies to fix problems. And you know, it, you, a version of that would, be an argue, would have been an argument against introducing universal education or introducing the, the health service. Um, I think where there is more merit is in a version of Tim's argument which is that if you are introducing a uniform policy across the board and you're introducing it in a way that massively affects people who are sort of on or below the poverty line, you have to be really careful that there aren't any edge cases. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody who's pretty well off ends up losing out a bit from a quirk of how the system works, that's much less of a problem, although politically it can be hugely controversial. Think about some of the restrictions on child benefit yeah. and how outraged... The outraged poor on the seventy thousand plus. Were and indeed, how the, how the yeah. two child limit exactly. has displaced lots of people from yeah. areas of the country yeah. where they now yeah. can no longer afford to live. Um, and so, I think where one of the problems, therefore, is to avoid those sorts of issues where it puts people into real hardship. Is a, a universal system has to actually be quite generous. 
because sure. otherwise your edge cases hit people or you get back to it not being a uniform policy across the board. But the I think the other argument that I people... I would just say, by the way, in, t- mm. in terms of... Uh, I mean, you're right to say that uh, you never get anywhere unless you... I'll just hit stop you, there and uh, end the podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs> um, you're right to say that you never get anywhere unless you actually uh, start somewhere. But, of course, with the universal education... It's that not, that I mean, made my argument sound somewhat trite and yet also slightly like a Chinese proverb. Good. To get right, somewhere, you have to start that's, somewhere. That's exactly the, the level I was pushing it at. Um, <laughs> Trite proverbs. It's my but to take your analogy with universal education, yeah. of course, we didn't start off with saying true, that true. Uh, every child will be mm. educated to the age of 18. Yeah. That's where we've ended up, but it happened yeah. more gradually. And that's the trouble when you come up with something like universal uh, income, is that you'd have to have some form mm. of big bang, or else it's going to be a massive compromise. Mm. I mean, like the Finnish model. Um, you know, because people have been waiting for years, haven't they, for this famous Finnish pilot um, of universal uh, income mm. to come to an end? It did, and uh, what we saw with the model was, first of all, it was a relatively modest mm. amount of money, um, five hundred pounds thereabouts mm. a month. Um, not knocking that, but it's not going to be enough to live on in most parts of the country, and probably not even in Finland. I'm suspecting. Yeah. Not to cover all costs, especially not in Finland. Well, yeah, it's quite I mean, expensive, yes. isn't it? So to, I can't imagine that actually does is a mm. is universal income in what most people would understand by the term. Um, but also, for, it was introduced by a centre right mm. um, government, of course, in Finland, and uh, with the intent, from their point of view, of increasing employment, which it didn't do mm. in comparison to the control yeah. group uh, of those who uh, who weren't receiving universal benefits. So. Uh, Judging it's policy by evidence, you should do this professionally, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's never going <laughs> to catch, gonna catch on. on. The, the other argument, though, I think in favour of universal basic income, which, again, I think is flawed but has more merit to it, is this idea that there is some fundamental change underway in how the economy works, which is going to essentially result in the abolition of lots of jobs and not the replacement of them by lots of new jobs. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we will end up with a completely dysfunctional economy and society unless we find a way of redistributing money from the small number of people who will be able to work and make lots of money to everyone else who will no longer have jobs available for them. Um, and essentially, the reason I think this argument is wrong is that, oh my goodness, loads of jobs are all about to disappear, has happened. You know, that's been the argument through every big wave of economic and industrial change in humanity's history. And it's been wrong every time before. Yeah. Now, of course, something that's been wrong every time before might not be wrong this time. Uh, but I think there's, a, there's, there's reason for good scepticism about basing a hugely controversial and disruptive policy on the basis of something that has always not been the case. This time might be the case, though, isn't yet. Yeah. So I think uh, um, the listeners are getting a very balanced take, I feel, on... Uh, an accurate on take, I believe, an accurate basic take. Income. Um, basically, we're both not in favour of it. But it does... Uh, and the reason I wanted to discuss it, even though we knew mm. in advance we didn't actually uh, disagree with each other, was because it leads us into the question of the Lib Dems and radicalism. Uh, oh, yeah. This is something that you've, mm. I know, written about before, because it's, uh, you know, you won't go to a Lib Dem conference, whether it's fringe event or a uh, main debate on the floor or just any kind of local party event without at some point someone saying what the Lib Dems need to do is be more radical. Yeah. Um, we need more radical policies because that's what's missing in politics. Um, and perhaps you heard this a little bit more pre-Corbyn mm. than post-Corbyn because that's given a different mm. flavour to our uh, political scene. But still, you get that view of the problem with the Lib Dems is they're not radical enough. Mark, do you agree? No. I think one of the problems, I think, with 
those sorts of statements is is it strikes me they're not really that different from saying well you know what the Lib Dems need to be is to be more successful well you know what the Lib Dems need to be is to be more effective we need to get more votes exactly it it's sort of it's the how are you going to do it and what are the pros and cons of the method that you propose that is what really matters and I don't believe there is a huge pile of amazing radical policy somewhere hidden in a in a think tank's cupboard that nobody has yet come across. Um, and in particular, quite often, the we must be more radical exhortation is either followed up by no suggestions or, well, I guess is maybe worse, maybe it's better to be, to be fair, uh, that, that particular person's pet policy, which actually is something that often the party has promoted in the past, hasn't been very popular and most of the rest of the world hasn't been interested in. Yeah. Um, now, definitely, it is possible to change. Land value tax, go on, say. Well, land value taxation, you see, I think, is, is a good example of why the we must be more radical is the wrong thing to say. Because I'm actually a bit of a fan of land value taxation. Mm-hmm. The real problem it's with land very, value taxation... It's a very sensible it's a very, Exactly. And when it, when it has been used in Britain <clears throat> and never called land value taxation, <laughs> there may be a clue for us there as to what we should do next, it's actually worked quite well, the way that the Jubilee Line extension had essentially a land value tax associated with it so that people who own property near the Jubilee Line extension and made loads of money out of the increase in property values coughed up a whole load in tax that helped pay for the extension in the first place. Um, so the thing with land value taxation is not, oh, we need to be more radical, it's we need to find a way to take this policy that has a slightly weird reputation, mm-hmm. has a not very attractive sounding name, and turn it into an effective campaigning message. And that's the bit yeah. that's missing. It's not the, where is this locked cupboard hidden somewhere hidden somewhere in a think tank? And I, th- I think that there's a variant on this, which is a point that Nick Barlow, uh, he picked a lovely phrase talking about political vaporware uh, on his <laughs> blog when talking about uh, the latest talk about a new possible centre party mm-hmm. and, and how often people who are calling for a new centre party or maybe have been involved in one of the 73 new centre parties <laughs> we've had in the last nine days, they have a version of we must be more radical, which is we just all need to be a bit sensible. The radical centre. Exactly. We just need to be moderately sensible, <laughs> as if that is somehow a substitute for having a clear sense of what your political priorities are, um, which it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting we've moved on to um, that kind of the latest um, bout of excitement mm. over centre parties um, because it's, uh, I mean, it's reared its head again. It did um, last year, obviously, um, uh, when you uh, previous year, sorry, with the election of Macron, uh, and obviously once pre the twenty seventeen mm. election when the uh, centre left of Labour was assuming that Jeremy Corbyn would collapse and mm. that they would have to split off in some way and then that that receded but it's it's reared its head again uh, in the context obviously of the conniptions over brexit mm. um and i mean you mentioned nick barlow and of course he's one of the people who's pointed out not alone uh, a number of um political scientists have pointed to the fact that actually if you look at where the political center is in british politics we tend to have this image mm. in our head of you know the sdp mm. um of that kind of um mm. uh moderate sort of triangulated politics that's somewhere mm. between Conservative and Labour mm. and you know is the um, to coin Nick Clegg's phrase you know it's got the uh, the head of Conservative and the heart of Labour and 
you know, it has that... Ah, yes, that David Owen. The David Owen quadrant. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, sorry, I forgot it was David Owen originally, wasn't it? But that idea of, you know, you are... Oddly, people tend not to name their ideas after David. You are are kind-hearted but efficient. Uh, (laughs) Tough but tender. Tough Tough but tender, tender. exactly. Um, So that's where most people kind of uh, have the assumption that the centre party would be located uh, in terms of the British left-right axis or however you want to characterise it. But Nick Barlow and others have pointed out... I do not subscribe to Stephen Tall's dedication to the left-right political spectrum. Other political spectrums are available. Spectra. Um, So, but where we actually, uh, in terms of mainstream, Mm. which maybe is different, a better way of putting it than political centre, the mainstream Mm. would be left-leaning economically and right-leaning socially. So economically Mm. um, labourish and socially conservative-ish. And I suppose, uh, you know, if you looked at two most popular things that a party could say, it would be pro-NHS and anti-immigration, mm. which by chance happens to, of course, be in the Leave um, campaign tactic <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. in the referendum. But that's if you want the mainstream um, perspective and where it would hit the kind of the, the nexus, the sweet spot of... Um, British politics, that's where you'd locate a party. Yeah. And you tried to do it, but could never quite manage yeah, I wouldn't, it. I think I wouldn't quite describe it as the sweet spot of British politics. I think what, the savoury what, spot. What I would describe it as is it's the, it's the un, underserved gap yeah. in British politics. Yeah. That If you were, you know, from a purely cynical motivation, thinking I'm going to create a new party, where should I locate its policies to try and mm-hmm. maximise its chances of success? I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the gap is for that. Uh, you know, for that sort of leave campaign combination of sort of pro-NHS, anti-foreigners. Um, and interestingly, it seems like that's a similar gap uh, that exists, for example, in US politics as well, yeah. uh, at the moment getting our token reference to politics overseas <laughs> in. Although, actually, no, you mentioned Macron as well. We've, we're we're up, did, to two, yeah, yeah. up to two foreign yeah. references. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah. Um, I think with the Lib Dems, in a, you know, the challenge for us is actually the gap that we most successfully fill is not underserved, but in a way has two parties battling for it, mm. which is a chunk of Labour and the Liberal yep. Democrats that, uh, I guess, centre-left on sort of social, uh, on economic-type issues. Um, that, that's centre-left on an axis you don't believe exists. And, but, right? but there's a second axis I'm about okay, to superimpose right. at 90 yeah. degrees yeah. Uh, to this axis mm-hmm. and very much yeah, at the liberal, the liberal end of the liberal authoritarian axis. That is, is territory which, uh, you know, there's a whole chunk of people in who at the moment think the Labour are the party of choice for them. Or, uh, I mean, yes, I think, I'm mm. not disagreeing with you, I, mean, I think that kind of that graduate professional, mm. um, generally mm. quite middle-class yeah. group, who we uh, lost during the coalition mm. years uh, and uh, defaulted to Corbyn. Mm. But I think it is a sense of defaulting to Corbyn. I don't, I don't know whether there's necessarily a... There probably was in 2017 mm. a positive embrace mm. of some of the more... Um, populist policies that were um, put on offer, not least on tuition fees, but also renationalisation of railways, etc. Um, I suspect since then that enthusiasm has dissipated, but the problem then for the Lib Dems is that in lots of those seats now we are an absence, not a presence. And so if you are in um, Bristol uh, or even, dare I say, Cambridge, you know, it's, uh, it's not immediately obvious that the Lib Dems are going to suddenly resurge straight into first place. Yeah, I think, again, I would half agree with you. (laughs) We've not quite got this podcasting two hosts always disagreeing with each other. We're just being a bit too liberal. I only half half disagree with you. Well, I'm going to half agree with you then. (laughs) Oh, oh, fighting talk, fighting talk. Because I think Bristol and Cambridge are 
slightly better, in fact, more than slightly better, much better than average for the Liberal Democrats in this context, because the Liberal Democrats are still very much present in the politics mm -hmm. of both cities and do things like win council seats and the like. Okay, London um, is probably... Yeah, absolutely. There, there, but there is a big chunk of the country where the Lib Dems have fallen so far that it's we just don't seem relevant mm -hmm. to people at all. And, and in a way, it's, it's sort of the logical, tactical vote if you're a Remainer. You know, OK, you might not like Labour on Brexit, but it is true that a Labour-type Brexit will be less Eurosceptic mm -hmm. than a Tory-type Brexit. So... If the Lib Dems are nowhere, and let's say you're in England and therefore there's not a nationalist party and so on, you may well pick yeah, Labour just just for a tactical vote. And as, as you say, perhaps in 2017 with a bit of, oh, and this, isn't this you know, lo lovely to have this new Mr Corbyn and all that? Probably without that now, which I think does mean that Labour vote is very brittle because it is both a, a huge strength but a potential massive weakness that Labour is a coalition of of essentially two very different political mm. tribes. Mm. You know, if you look at views on immigration, on civil liberties, and indeed on Europe, there are two very different groups of people in the Labour Party. Ironically, Jeremy Corbyn is being even better than Tony Blair at triangulating between the two of them well, and it, keeping yeah. them together. Is he actually being better? But will know. he, you know, will he be able to carry out that balancing act forever? Yeah, and we've seen his, uh, um, we take poll ratings with a huge pinch of salt obviously these days but nonetheless his leadership ratings mm. have plummeted and that's seen partly as a result of uh, uh, not just his Euroscepticism mm. which is instinctive and you'd hope people would realise perhaps not um, but actually just that sense of he's not trying to have a policy mm. here he's trying actively not to have a policy and for someone who uh, branded themselves mm. as such a conviction politician that's quite a big uh, brand issue mm. to cope with. Yeah. He also seems to be doing remarkably little as leader of a party. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's, I, I guess you follow political news more closely than the average, the average person. But not than our average podcast listener, uh, obviously. But here's my challenge to you. Name me one policy initiative from Jeremy Corbyn so far this year. I'm now thinking he, if I should have said name have, two. He must have promised free bus journeys for yeah, everyone. But, but, that, but you see, my point is, is that there's a remarkable yeah. lack of activity there. If you, think, if you compare it with, say, when David Cameron became Tory leader, I mean, whatever one thinks of the merits of going, jetting off to find a husky to hug, there was a real sense mm. of he was trying to communicate things about what he wanted to do as leader. Likewise with Ed Miliband. I mean, in a wet sense, Ed Miliband's problem was that he just... He thought he could launch something once and then everyone would know about it. So he almost did too many of those. But by comparison, Corbyn seems to be remarkably inactive yeah. um, as a leader. And actually, I think that's a, an important point in, in the context of the whole debate about a new centrist <coughs> party, uh, which I think, weirdly, we sort of underrate the importance of leadership. Um, I mean, which seems mm. not thing to say, given that the media obsessively focuses on leaders to the, mm. accept, uh, to the exclusion of all else and it can massively frustrate Lib Dems when we say look you know look at what our policies say not what our uh, you know whether our leader has got uh, a particular shade of socks or has <laughs> hair or whatever it might be that's you know that day's particular um, fish and chips um, it's uh, but I think the leadership I mean, and you can see this um, let's take an example of Ruth Davidson in Scotland mm. um, who by the way would probably be within a, in a good shout of getting Conservative leadership if she were eligible to stand mm when Theresa May uh, departs the scene, whenever that is. 
Um, Shall we record a couple of versions of this in case uh, in case she has departed by the time this goes live? Um, politics does move quickly, but I think even it won't move yeah. back quickly. So, so speaking got... as we are in December 2018. <laughs> and so you've got Ruth Davidson is a really good example of someone who has pretty much single-handedly, mm. and I'm sure that she's got a great team behind her, but from, a, from an outsider's perspective, pretty much single-handedly rescued the Tories in Scotland. Uh, and transformed mm. the landscape up there so that you have the SNP as the mm. lead centre-left party. That's a slightly dodgy description of them in some ways, yeah. but nonetheless, it's how it's perceived. And then the Conservatives as the main opposition mm. to them and leaving Labour in the tricky position that we used to be in of, of kind of you know raising their hands going, look, but, but don't forget us, guys. So you've got that. You've also, of course, uh, got... Oh, well, you had David Cameron, you've mentioned already, mm. who... Back in 2008-2009, was got the Conservative Party to 50% in the opinion polls. Um, at a time and after the 2005 election, people were wondering whether or not... Did he the, get them to 50%? Yes, yeah, it was. Well, 48 or 49%, certainly. Um, I, if you look at a poll spreadsheet, um, I don't know whether you If only one, 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 one of us it's, had one, we could consult. It's incredibly hard to find these details <laughs> online. But yes, they, they got up to that kind of level of support, um, which is um, uh, phenomenal mm. and uh, hard to think of these days. Um and, of course, you've got Corbyn as well, uh, as the most obvious example, I suppose, recently mm. of someone who managed to put their political tradition, which everyone had thought was uh, out with the garbage, mm. suddenly made it um, uh, mainstream again and uh, incredibly popular. So I think we underestimate leadership mm. uh, as well as... So whilst I'm sort of arguing against myself, because I would say that the that sweet spot in British politics from a purely political vantage point of view is pro-NHS, anti-immigrant. Um, actually, I think you could be a politician who comes in and says, um, you know, we need to look again at the NHS, and by the way, let's welcome in lots of foreigners. If you manage to do it in a way uh, that was happy, smiley, and provided people with that sense of uh, well-being and security that they crave. Well, to defend your argument against yourself, uh, uh, if, you take that, if you take that sweet spot... Um, One of the occasions when it has been filled by a politically successful party in the last few years is by UKIP when it was led Mm. by Nigel Farage in his phase of greater popularity. And it is striking how, although UKIP is still, (laughs) UKIP is still, you know, was was both before and after, not so much now anymore, but before and after, in that policy sweet spot, but without the popularity of Nigel Farage to go alongside it, not nearly as... Successful, and obviously yeah. there's a bit of the more successful parties, the more popular their leader is. But I think yeah, the popu- his popularity played a big part in making that po- point on the political spectrum a successful one for a yeah. political party to be so in. So can I put you on the spot? Mm. Do you think the biggest issue for the Lib Dems then is not having a popular enough leader, or that it's not having popular enough policies? Um, I think the big challenge for the party is credibility. Mm-hmm. And there are multiple different sources. So does it need to have more credibility. credible leader or more I credible policies? I think there are multiple different sources of credibility that a party can can uh, Listen, can tap I'm into. I'm getting a politician's answer here. Uh, well, you're going to get an even better politician's answer now because, of course, Vince has said that he will stand down uh, in the near future. Uh, so we are likely to have a leadership election, yeah. and I think you're, you're absolutely right that that will be one of the important issues is it's likely that in that contest there will be at least one person who served as a minister in the coalition government and at least one person who didn't as we mm-hmm. touched yep. on before in one of our earlier pilots and that question about credibility and does that therefore make you think 
previous coalition minister or not is an advantage or a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. I think is is part of what we know. We need to get right out of that, out of that contest. I think in the Lib Dem case, actually, an awful lot of credibility comes from electoral momentum, and therefore, you know, if I was if I was in charge of everything, I would be you know trying to mobilise members much more. For example, week by week to win council by elections and have sort of reoriented the party much more to focus on this May's council elections as the biggest round in the four-year cycle, because that's, that's the sort of momentum that you can get by sort of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps as well as you know, doing much better on digital. And of course, if we could extend Article 50 enough that the European elections happened, then uh, you know, there's oh, a chance the, for I, a bounce back I mean, there, there are all sorts there? of very serious issues involved here, including, obviously, you know, amongst, for example, EU citizens who are worried about whether, you know, how secure yeah. their place is in terms of still living where they've lived for years and years. That said, a European set of European Parliament elections would be just such a wonderful political fun fair because yeah. there'll be what happens to UKIP, what happens to the new version of UKIP, will any centre party do anything, what will happen to the Lib Dem? You know, if you think of the number of different political yeah. stories and fates at stake, the European election would be a bonanza. And we might even have to do more than one podcast on it. Then, and a so completely consequence-free election for the British electorate, really. Well, it, I mean, that, but that's the thing is you are sort of right in that it would, I think, have huge amounts of impact. But also people would feel it, it's a bit like a parliamentary by-election yeah. in that yeah. sense. So not that they think it's consequence-free, but an, a, an election in which you feel you can use your vote to really send a loud and powerful message and therefore not vote the way you normally would because you're not choosing the Prime Minister. So laden with consequences, but as it's not choosing Prime Minister, you go for all sorts of slightly weird and wonderful voting patterns. I'm delighted, by the way, because I've actually managed to get us to discuss Brexit, which you've deliberately made sure we swerve away from in the previous On that note, I think we're going to have to bring this to an end, therefore, aren't we? We're nearly up against the half-hour mark as well, but maybe we should just tease our listeners with some of the ideas of names for the podcast. That yeah. um, basically you have come up with an I have vetoed. I think is the, the yeah. essential description of that WhatsApp exchange between us. Uh, yeah, bas- I mean this is the uh, the basic format I'm discovering for the podcast is 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 I come up with lots of creative, brilliant ideas, and Mark goes no. Don't like that. Um, although I think it was my suggestion that it we was, go for it was during the third podcast that creative tension <laughs> started to appear amongst the duo. Actually, that would be great. What we should do is name the podcast after ourselves, so Tall and Pack or Pack and Tall. Then when tall we ha- and Pack certainly has more when of a room, a, I feel. <laughs> when we have a big creative falling out, we each then will have to scour the country for someone else with the right name who can become our <laughs> new co-host. And, but 101 Ways to Avoid Talking About Brexit was, was a suggestion of mine that you vetoed. OK. Uh, I don't remember vetoing. Actually, I quite like that one now. Um, you see, I flip-flop as well. Uh, so my ideas were, um, what were they? They were Stick It On A Podcast. A um, obscure reference to David Penhaligon. Yep, and they stick it on a leaflet and uh, put it through a letterbox. Uh, and you also uh, riffed off that to have Never Mind The Bar Charts. Never Mind The Bar which Charts. Which I thought I is actually right. pretty good. It's, I'm not, uh, it's right. a little bit insular, but I thought if we ever form a pop group, I'm willing to go for calling it Never Mind The Bar Charts. Don't, don't uh, worry, listeners. We, <laughs> we're not we're against not, a pop group. Not unless if, I start if, dressing yeah, in the velvet. Yeah, if anyone hunts really hard on the internet, you can find a film clip of me dancing to a song. And that would immediately make you realise why I should never appear in a pop group. Wow. wow. Um, You've got the dance moves. Yeah, I, I wondered... <laughs> oh, thank you, Stephen. I wondered, given that we do this unedited, 
I don't think it shows, does it? No. Um, whether something like one take politics or politics unedited or politics uncut. Oh, boring. Boring. <sighs> Listeners, just flood his inbox. Um, uh, Poddy which... McPodface. <sighs> Honestly. No, let's call it the David Attenborough podcast. That'll, at least that's good for SEO, isn't it? We're going to get true. some great hits. <laughs> and very <laughs> short listen time as people realise what on earth have I stumbled on. So please, please send us your suggestions for names and your encouragement or strong discouragement if you do or don't want us if, to turn if, this into a regular thing. Because basically, if you're not nice to us, then there may well be a fourth pilot podcast, and you don't Nobody want Nobody wants do a fourth pilot. Thank you very much.